is alive in our world. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right. So depending on who you are, this is either going to be the best joke you've ever heard or it's going to be the worst joke you've ever heard. All right, a horse walks into a bar. The bartender asks the horse if it's an alcoholic, considering that it frequents bars all across town. To which the horse replies, I don't think I am. I think not. And poof, the horse disappears. This is the point in time when all of the people in the, in the audience who are philosophy students begin to giggle. For they are familiar with the philosophical proposition of cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore, I am. But to explain the concept beforehand would be, would be putting Descartes before the horse. That went a lot better than I thought it was going to. <laughs> okay, so that was a weird way to introduce uh, Rene Descartes, who, <laughs> I had to do it though. Uh, Rene Descartes was the 17th century philosopher, a uh, French philosopher, and he was really famous for this saying, I think, therefore I am. And I think we've all heard this most likely at some point in time. And when he said this, it was meant to be a proof of our existence, which feels weird. This is like the kind of things that philosophers do, and you're like, why are you, look, I'm here. I, I, I'm made of material, I am, like, anyways. But what Descartes was doing was actually pretty revolutionary because he was placing the proof of the self in the self. Like, my proof for my own being comes from me. And you've got to contrast this with, with what came before. It would have been a theological answer. God is the loving creator who crafts all existence. I am because God has done something. I am because of God's love or any number of proofs of our existence that would come from outside of yourself. Rene Descartes was among a group of philosophers who were actually placing our existence not outside, but inside. You kind of have to stretch your imagination and imagine what that would have been like. But in many ways, uh, Descartes' thought is, is the root of a lot of, of what becomes individualism in the modern era. And we still all of us tend to think about the world in terms of the individual. And I, this has gotten into faith as well. And it's been a really interesting shift in faith in the last 500 years or so. But faith, we sometimes talk about it as though it is about our relationship with God. And sometimes we even think about it as a private matter, right? If you're at the dinner table, you don't talk about what? politics and religion, because politics and religion are supposed to be personal, private. Each individual in this world is given the opportunity to respond to God, to do good or evil, and we're measured and judged by our own actions. 
and this is a truly modern idea. If you went back a thousand years and told somebody living in Europe that their faith was about their individual relationship with God, they would look at you like, what does that even mean? They might even actually ask you, what is an individual? But that's another complicated sermon with another bad joke attached to it. The thing is, though, that the Bible doesn't really understand faith as an individual endeavor. And there are a lot of places in Scripture that tell us this. For instance, if you go and read the Pauline epistles, you'll read the word you a lot, as in you. And sometimes you think that Paul is talking about an individual. So in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you read, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Except in Greek, that's not a singular you. That's a plural you, which changes the meaning just a little bit. This is, there was a great article about this that explained it this way. Imagine if you replaced you with y'all. Imagine if Paul had been a southerner, is really what we're saying. And so this passage has been used to understand, you know, you are the temple of God, about why our bodies are the temple. Which we understand how the care of our bodies is important. Except that you, in this passage, is plural. So what Paul is really saying is, do you all know, do you all not know that you are God, ugh, sorry. Do you not know that you guys, you all, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? So there's a bit of a different meaning here, right? In fact, it makes the case that the community is the temple of God, that the life we do together, how we treat one another, how we dine together, that's where God's temple is. Now, that's still a pretty radical message when compared with the temple is the physical structure somewhere, that it's a place. But it is not saying that you individually are the temple of God. And so the idea that faith is an individual endeavor is really a modern idea. And in fact, in much of the words of Jesus, what we find is that what it means to be faithful really comes to have meaning in our interactions with one another. Most of what is good faith is about how we live in community, how we treat others. And we're going to hear Jesus talk about this a little bit today. Jesus' teachings that we're going to hear about in a moment are directed at the ways in which we treat our neighbor. And it's some advice that even today feels pretty fresh, feels new, feels a little bit radical. So let's hear what he has to say. This is from Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For the judgment you give will be the judgment you get. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you seek the speck in your neighbor's eyes but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly 
to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asked for bread, would give a stone? Or if the child asked for a fish, would give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. May God bless this reading. Well, as I reflected on this passage this week, including with staff earlier in the week, what became really apparent to me is how much following Jesus is really dependent on others. I don't really mean something that we need by them. I mean that faith is measured by how we treat one another. And Jesus has this warning against judgment. If you judge others, you will also be judged. And guess what? You're not going to be up for it. It's real easy to point out somebody else's flaws, but when you do that, you kind of leave yourself open to have somebody do the same to you. And Jesus knows as as well as any that if we're going to go down the road of who is the faultless one, not many are going to make it. After all, who is truly ready to face judgment? Who can say that they have lived a perfect life? And so Jesus' directive is supposed to help us, each of us, recognize that we are in need of mercy. That each of us is in need of mercy. Because each of us can say to another, or each of us is in need of saying to another, yes, I see your faults, but that's okay. I can love you anyways. In fact, in this way, you kind of need other people to help you learn how to be merciful. That if you want to be like Jesus, you actually have to know folks who need mercy, who need forgiveness. And so Jesus is in a way saying, You know, your faith is going to rely, is going to grow, not when you personally achieve some level of personal faithfulness, but your faith will grow when you are in a community where you actually have to practice mercy, where you actually have to be forgiving. And I think we all know what this looks like in the church. Can you imagine a church where only perfect people attended. And anyone who fell short was judged, maybe even kicked out. Be a totally empty room. Be none of us here. I wouldn't be here. Promise you that. 
But to understand faith, you actually have to be together with others. All of our faults and shortfallings included. And then you have to practice being non-judgmental, which is a task that none of us gets completely right. But it is a task that continually teaches us something. It teaches us something about God. It teaches us something about ourselves. So growing in faith requires community. It requires relationship. It's the only real way you learn to practice mercy. And a few passages later, Jesus doubles down on this. We all know the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it kind of, this passage makes me wonder, like, well, what, what, what is appropriate behavior? Sometimes we imagine that there's like a list of things that we should and shouldn't do. And there probably are some things that you universally shouldn't do to others. Like there are some things that belong on that list. But Jesus doesn't give his followers a list. Even though he's talking about the law and the prophets, he doesn't lay out, you know, the 10 things that you should do all the time. Just do that. Instead, he gives this law, this golden rule, which is really situationally dependent, right? You'll know what you should do and shouldn't do as you learn it from your neighbor, from how you treat them. So this law will give you different answers depending on the situation. Sometimes what is loving to one person won't be to another. At moments, one thing is loving and at other moments, it's not loving. So following Jesus's command, you actually have to use your own judgment. You have to figure it out as you go, which might take us back to the, the, the mercy that don't judge because we're all trying our best to show God's love. And it's hard because it requires you to be attentive at all moments. And it's because love is not really about a set of rules. Love is not about a set of precepts that work all of the time. Love is learned by living in community with your neighbor. It's learned by being together with others and figuring out what it means to show mercy and compassion and love. You know, in our culture, it's become really fashionable to talk about Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior. And in some ways, this makes sense. We live in a pluralistic world. There are people in our community who are from many different religions. Uh, you, in, in a community like Lafayette, with a university like Purdue, with an international student body, there are lots and lots of different beliefs. So faith is a deeply personal matter. It'll be different for each of us. But sometimes we take this idea of a personal Lord and Savior a little bit far. First, the problem with it, it's really not biblical. There is no formulation in the New Testament anywhere of a personal Lord and Savior. Jesus is proclaimed as the Lord and Savior. But that's different from saying it's a personal Lord and Savior. But the second reason it can be problematic is 
what I've been saying, it really presents it as though faith is something you can do on your own. Like it's about my relationship with God. And for Jesus' teachings, you really can't do it on your own. You really need others. We actually need those relationships, those moments of kindness and mercy and love. We need, in the Christian life, the mess-ups. Like the places where we get it totally wrong are places where we learn what mercy is because other people show us mercy. And we can feel what it actually feels like to have the forgiveness that we're going to have to show to somebody else when they make a mistake. When we do that, we learn a little bit about what it means to knock, ask, seek, as the passage says, to ask for the mercy that you need. Faith requires this community, this coming together, this negotiating. It requires messing up and seeking forgiveness. We're now at this point a couple years, a year, I don't know, months removed from the pandemic or in the pandemic, depending on who you ask. It's hard to know. But I think one of the things that has stuck with us about the times of pandemic lockdown is that we actually do need one another to be present with one another. We've discovered new technologies, Zoom and Livestream, and they're great. They can be really wonderful at bringing people together. And they have become and will be essential for the community. But they're not really replacements for doing the life of faith together. Because they don't always call us to negotiate community. They don't always call us to figure out how to take my preferences and your preferences and find a middle graceful ground. During the pandemic in 2020, uh, the Christian Century Magazine published an article by Debbie Thomas, who's an Episcopalian priest in California. And she was writing in October of 2020, right as things were starting to open back up. And she had this to say about her need for community. This is what she wrote. When I connected in person with fellow parishioners this week, I experienced a tiny spark of what I've missed since the pandemic separated us. My spiritual bedrock is not a personal relationship with God. It's the mystery of the incarnation fleshed out and embodied community. It's in the faces, voices, hands, and feet of the body of Christ that I experience Christ. It's in the laughter of other people that I hear God's joy. It's in the tears of other people that I see God's broken heart. It's in the messy human connection that God's redeeming love streams into my life. So indeed, you can have a personal faith. And I think in many ways, our faith is personal. But faith really comes alive when you mix it with community. Faith needs that community. Faith needs the temple of God, as Paul calls it. Of course, it is much easier not to be in community, right? Community comes with all sorts of challenges. You ever tried to plan a big event, gotten through it without anybody getting upset about something? 
I would love to know about it. There are people who do things that you want to judge. But then again, you do things that they want to judge. And this is the way of life. And it's in working through that that we grow. It's in learning to figure out how to do that together that we grow. And it's because faith is as much about how we treat one another as it is about anything else. I don't know if being in messy community is what Jesus meant by the narrow gate. Not everybody wants to choose it. But it kind of works here. In a world where it is sometimes easier to choose not to be in relationship with others, in a world where it can be easier to exclude folks whose presence might lead to difficult and uncomfortable conversations, in a world in which it is possible to live our lives in a completely withdrawn state, only interacting with people from a distance, I kind of wonder if the narrow gate might be community with people, the old school community with people, the like church potluck or pitchin, whatever you call it, community with people, the navigating, the difficult relationships and conversations. So much of Jesus' teachings have to do with how we treat one another. It's because we're meant to live in community. You can't do life alone. But where there's community, there's always going to need to be a bit of give and take. So what Jesus is saying is good advice. Don't judge others because you'll be judged. Show mercy because you're going to need mercy too. Faith is not just what we do on our personal walk. It's what we do together. It's what happens when we learn from one another, when we practice a different way of life together. After all, in life, we are all in this together, trying to make sense of it, showing love, practicing mercy, building compassion. We gather together because God has called us together. We gather together because we grow. We gather together because it is good. Amen. Well, as we gather today for worship, uh, if you are